welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. My name is Tim Beck. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. Uh, today, I'll be interviewing Hans Scott Meyer, who is a professor of human services at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia. Uh, over the last 50 years, he has worked within a wide variety of human service settings, including residential homes, community health centers, inpatient psychiatric units, homeless youth shelters, uh, transitional living programs, and prisons. Around two decades ago, he transitioned into academia, where he now does research in the liminal spaces between human services, psychology, cultural theory, and literature. His recently published book, titled Post-Capitalist Subjectivity in Literature and Anti-Psychiatry, asks the question, how might we be different if we didn't live in a capitalist society? By drawing on Marxist and post-Marxist theory and conducting nuanced analysis of the professional writings of anti-psychiatrists, including Franco Basaglia and R.D. Lang, and the work of fiction writers, including Franz Kafka and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, the text identifies alternative conceptualizations of self and community. Welcome, Hans. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you to talk about your work. And a pleasure to be here with you, Tim. Um, so to get started, I just want to acknowledge what a rich and diverse collection of experiences you've had over your life. Uh, and I imagine this must be a continual source of inspiration in the research that you do. Uh, can you unpack this history a little bit for us uh, and explain how it is that you found your way into academia after working in all of these different contexts? Sure. It's always, like with the book, an interesting process to think through uh, a certain kind of lineage, a certain kind of trajectory uh, in terms of what bits and pieces you pay attention to in response to a particular context and, and series of inquiries. So it, what I'm going to talk about a little bit is, uh, is certainly both extremely partial but pointed uh, in terms of how I got here, wherever that is. In 1971, uh, when I was still in high school, uh, I volunteered uh, at a place called, this is, tell you how long ago, Furcrest Mental Retardation Center. That language in and of itself is extremely interesting. Uh, and uh, I spent uh, a year there volunteering, uh, working with the people who were there, specifically uh, some young people who uh, had difficulty uh, physically moving about uh, and had difficulty with being able to speak uh, in conventional kinds of ways, but were certainly available for relational care in terms of building relationships that uh, go beyond uh, the normal sort of parameters of uh, the way we interact normally physically and the way that we interact normally verbally. And I think even though I was very young, um, I learned particularly at an intuitive level um, something very important that has carried through me with me for the rest of my career, which has been that a great deal can be learned in the spaces that are created relationally between people uh, that are not necessarily reliant upon conventional ways of um, seeing bodies, uh, interacting with bodies, uh, verbally conveying information, and that a great deal of what the, of the most important things are not, in fact, things that we can consciously pay attention to. In fact, a considerable amount of what is the most important work that we can do with one another uh, takes place at levels that are, to some degree, ineffable and very, very difficult for us to get to uh, in conventional ways of being physical and in conventional ways of being verbal and conventional ways of thinking. Um, so that was in 1971, and then I stepped out of that world uh, and went in and got a, uh, a degree in literature. And so when I stepped out of that, I stepped into um, a world of doing street poetry. And I was involved with a group called the Dogtown Poetry Theater in Seattle, which later became pretty well known. Jesse Bernstein, who's a punk poet, came, became um, pretty well known out of that group among some other people. I was not one of the people who became well known out of that group. In any case, I had, I had gone to Alaska and worked on some fishing boats in, in the canneries, and so I had a lot of money, because back then you could work in the unions and you could have a ton of money. So I had a bunch of money stashed away, and I thought, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll use this money and I'll, 
uh, go do some good in the world. Uh, and as it turned out, uh, there was a mental health center that had just opened up the street uh, in the rather impoverished neighborhood where I lived. Uh, and um, it was one of the very, very first sites for deinstitutionalization. And so I showed up with my degree in comparative literature, never having taken a psychology course or anything having to do with working with people. Uh, but I had experience, of course, in the late 60s with various forms of psychotic process, chemically induced and otherwise. And so uh, I kind of felt like I could re maybe relate to folks who were um, uh, having some difficulties in the interface between society and the way that they were neurologically organized. And um, so I uh, showed up um, and they hired me. I decided pretty quickly that really the issue was one of uh, being able to be bicultural. Uh, and so started talking with folks about, well, how do you, uh, manage to sustain who you are and what's important to you in terms of what you're thinking about or what's bothering you, uh, and still manage in the world without getting tossed into the hospital again. Uh, and so that sort of became the focus of my work. I wasn't particularly interested in having them um, be much different than they were, uh, other than uh, being able to be bilingual, uh, as Carl Whitaker, the, the great family therapist, used to say. Uh, that uh, schizophrenia is a disease of pathological integrity. You just don't know how to lie as well as the rest of us. And so uh, I kind of took that to heart and uh, really tried to work with folks in terms of how do you manage the society in such a way as they don't continue to incarcerate you. And simultaneously working as an advocate uh, with the system to try to uh, work with psychiatrists to lower dosages of medications and if possible take people off them because they seem pretty nasty. Haldol was around at that time, and it's a nasty, nasty drug. Um, so we uh, we spent time there. It was uh, very interesting working in an institution in which um, they didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, and so we got to do some pretty interesting stuff. Um, because they didn't have any real money to pay us, they decided to make that up with trainings. Uh, so they brought in Salvador Mnuchin, the family therapist uh, out of Philadelphia, and they brought in the uh, Mental Research Institute guys who were doing brief therapy and Ericksonian hypnotherapy. And they brought in Virginia Satir, um, and they brought in Frank Fairley, who used to do something called provocative therapy in the asylums in Wisconsin. Uh, all of these folks who were doing these really, at that time, really fringy things. And so we got, I like to say that I was never properly trained because I was never trained in the mainstream um, psychiatric discourses about uh, working with people who were experiencing uh, themselves at odds with the general society in terms of how they process things or express themselves. But when I finished that, I decided I wanted to dig deeper in some of, into some of the uh, cybernetics, particularly, uh, and some of the uh, stuff that was coming out of Ericksonian hypnotherapy. And so I uh, um, sold my house and took that money and went to California and did an internship uh, at the Mental Research Institute with John Weakland, particularly. And um, John was my mentor for a decade or more, but I spent intensive time there for uh, a couple of months and then uh, actually picked up a, a gig in San Francisco uh, working at a place called Schrader House. And Schrader House was an alternative to hospitalization in San Francisco. Uh, and so I spent about a year working there. And then uh, ended up taking a, a job, interestingly enough, in an inpatient unit immediately following. So I was very happy at Schrader House. I was not happy in the inpatient unit. And uh, finally, um, really had to resign because they were about to fire me for uh, interfering with uh, actually this is a serious uh, ethical lapse in one sense and an ethical statement in another uh, for messing with uh, the charting. Um, of a patient who was about to get electroshock in hopes of uh, diverting him from getting electroshock. I went into the chart and actually changed some things around, uh, which would indicate he shouldn't go. Uh, and they found out, of course, um, and he did get electroshock, but, um, which I thought was really sad because I don't think that was what was necessary for him. But, uh, you know, I was low man on the, in the system. And so, uh, um, they didn't take me very seriously. So I moved on from, from there uh, after having a, a tussle with them about that. Uh, and then uh, 
went from there into uh, foster care, actually, uh, and spent uh, a number of years working in the foster care system. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, ended up uh, working in uh, runaway and homeless youth services, which is where I spent the bulk of my career. That was what I did for the last uh, 10, 12 years of my work in the field. Um, so there are a couple of things to think about for me about that. One is, is that I never did anything of this on purpose. It wasn't as though I said, I want to work in mental health, or I think I want to work with this population of people, or I think I want to you know, become an expert uh, in these theories. Things appeared and became opportunities and things that I could do um, that looked interesting. Uh, and so I pretty much went from one thing to the other uh, based on the idea that that looks interesting. That might be a, an interesting thing to do. That might be an interesting thing to know. Um, but it was no, there was very little intentionality about it uh, in terms of uh, almost all of it was accidental, stumbling across things that looked like, well, that, that looks like it could be an interesting thing to do. So that, that was my career i mean there's much more i can say about that but I'll, I'll stop there oh yeah thank you so much i know that already starts to touch on so many themes that i hoped that we would at some point cover so that that'll provide a great foundation for us in terms of like the other themes that hopefully come up some things that stood out from what you were saying one like the importance of language and the ways that we talk about ourselves the way that we talk about our work um and and two this idea that some, there's something about relationships with other people that can't always be put into words, but that it's still important to acknowledge and pay attention to and sort of this the indeterminacy, as you talk about it in your book, um, of like what, what can happen when people get together um, and they start you know, living together and working together, like things start to open up. Like all of these themes to me were, were things that stood out when I was reading your book. Kind of curious, um, Maybe if you could talk a little bit about your, your academic research that you do um, with language being so important and also like, the concept of discipline talk, coming up at the beginning of your book. Like, do you consider yourself part of any particular academic discipline? Do you like, have a particular way of talking about the research that you do? And if you, you do, why? And if not, like, why, do you, why might you avoid putting yourself in a box in that sense? Okay, so... I got into academia when I ran out of the belief that what I was doing with young people um, made any sense. And looking around the work, and that's a whole conversation in and of itself, but looking around the work that was being done with young people, it struck me that the basic fundamental concepts that were being applied were simply inadequate and in many cases just damaging. So um, when I got to the end of that at my last job and just said, okay, I, I can't do this. I need to just walk off here. I threw myself into a, um, a space uh, where I was literally a single father with a, a teenage son at home throwing boxes into airplanes for UPS and playing with a rock band at night to make the rent um, and trying to figure out where do I go from here after you know, spending 25 years working in the field. And knowing that that was not a possibility for me anymore. Uh, and what occurred to me uh, as that process for about a year went on was, well, I'm pretty good at running my mouth and I can scribble stuff down pretty good. And it seems to me that I'd been doing some adjunct teaching um, as a community faculty member at the University of Minnesota. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go back and get a, a PhD and be a professor. Why not? Because it seems like those are things I can do. I can, I can talk a story pretty well, and I can write stuff okay. Uh, and so um, I went to the MSW program where I had been teaching and said, hey, you know what? Um, I think it'd be really cool if, uh, if I you know, applied for your PhD or your, I think it was a PhD in, in social work. And I went to the guy who uh, was my mentor there and, and shared that with him. And he happened to be the head of the grad program as well. And um, I said, okay, you know, that sounds like a good idea. And he said, you know what? He said, um, here's the problem. You teach really radical stuff <laughs> in these classes. And I've been hiding that from the rest of the faculty. And I think that if you came in as a student, they would never, ever let you graduate. 
But there's this other program over here, just down the road, and I have some friends over there, and they don't really know what they're doing. And so I think you could do what you needed to do with these radical ideas of yours, and they wouldn't bother you too much. And you can get a PhD without anyone really messing with you. And so I uh, went over there and um, did my first uh, dissertation, uh, which was on uh, skinheads and punks uh, and use subcultures as creative force, trying to think through some of these ideas about working with young people. And specifically, if we were to teach about working with young people, what would we teach? Uh, and so in the process of that, I discovered that uh, the department I was in really didn't have any theoretical apparatus uh, other than phenomenology, which certainly is a strong one, but not the one I needed. I wanted to think about uh, skinheads in terms of uh, being um, post-colonial, uh, in terms of uh, being remnants of working class culture, in terms of uh, not being racist, which they're actually not. Uh, the majority certainly are not. My investments in academia, much like my investments in the field, are um, rooted in contingency. That is to say, uh, the reason I wrote about skinheads and punks was because my son was a skinhead and then a punk. And so when I wrote that dissertation, I had to go through the whole ethics board to get permission to work with my son and his friends because you're not supposed to do that. Uh, and so I was able to do that, to interview them and to work with them because I knew them. They were in the house. They were staying overnight. They were hanging out. They were running away from home, all that kind of stuff. And so I you know, the clubs with them and, and go on the street with them and, and be in that life for a minute. And the reason that I got into writing this book that we're talking about uh, was because I simply didn't have the theoretical apparatus to be able to write the first book. But once I had the theoretical apparatus, then I needed to go back and pick up some pieces that I had left behind. And so I had left literature behind um, some 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, to go back and pick up that piece uh, and uh, and bring that in, some of the authors that I'd been interested in at that time that I didn't really get to finish thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to pick up the work that I'd done in the field very early on in day treatment in a Schrader house yeah. and think about anti-psychiatry and, and what implications that might have. So in a way, it's a certain kind of picking up of, of leftovers, of mm -hmm. little bits and pieces that, that weren't finished. Now, disciplinarily, what that meant and it's interesting you should ask that question because when I when I presented my dissertation defense for the second dissertation, one of my committee members um, said, "quote unquote," well, you are now officially officially disciplinarily unrecognizable, <laughs> yeah. and uh, that's been true. I mean, I teach, I have taught in humanities, I've taught philosophy, uh, I've taught psychology. Uh, I've taught social work, I've taught human services, I've taught uh, family therapy, um, I've taught child and youth care, I've taught child and youth studies, I've taught popular culture. Um, and so uh, I don't have a degree, by the way, in any of those things. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have a degree, oh, I do have a master's in ed psych, but I don't really, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, you know, I'm not, not a social worker. Uh, I don't have a degree in human services. Uh, I'm certainly not a philosopher by any stretch of imagination. I would never claim to be a philosopher. But I'm not disciplinarily affiliated uh, in any serious way. You know, the term transdisciplinary is popular now. It wasn't in existence when I started working this way. Um, yeah. But I guess I would say that, that uh, I'm transdisciplinary. In a few minutes, I hope you can explain, you know, what it was about those particular authors that interested you. But first, just given how much of your book focuses on anti-psychiatry and how much the listeners of this podcast are interested in that movement, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how you understand the anti-psychiatry movement. I think you've already mentioned a bit about how it's influenced you. But I found that it can be kind of a difficult thing to define. Uh, sometimes. So, I don't know, if you had to draw some historical or conceptual boundaries around it, where would you mark them and, and why would you put them there? Well, uh, for me, there are a couple of things to think about there. Uh, one is, is that I think that it's not the most useful way to think of it is not to try to mark it or delineate it or frame it. Because I think what anti-psychiatry did was open some things 
Um, and I think when we look at antipsychiatry as a project in terms of production, did it produce certain things? Did it do certain things? Well, yes, it did, without a doubt. But that's not the most interesting thing about it. I mean, Basalia, you know, had all the asylums shut down in Italy and, you know, got the law passed and, shut, you know, it was just remarkable. Lang did some rather astonishing things in, in London. Guattari and his compadres down there in, in southern France did did some very interesting things to Aini did, as you have written about, some fascinating things as well. So they all did stuff we could talk about as products. And then, of course, they all failed, uh, every last one of them, mm. uh, rather spectacularly in, in some instances. And um, as a result of which we could say, well... Okay, that was that was interesting. And of course, there's lots of problems and, you know, there's lots of arguments among them. Guatri thought Lang was a familialist and, mm. you know, Guatri himself has been accused of being pretty traditional psychiatric in terms of his interventions and his uh, sort of militaristic running of, uh, of Laborde. Uh, and of course... Um, you know, Basalia was extremely depressed about what happened to his project at the end of the day. He thought that the very centers that I worked in, the day treatment centers, he said were just the reasyloming of the things on the outside. Just do they just they just built, they got rid of the walls, but they kept the asylum. And of course, they were all pretty discouraged by the uh, intervention by psychiatric medications um, at the time. Uh, so if we think about antipsychiatry in those ways. Uh, they were abject failures. I mean, they didn't, in fact, anti-psychiatry at all. Uh, there was a brief moment, a window, uh, where some interesting things happened. Uh, and then there was, like the rest of the revolutions of the 60s and early 70s, there was abject failure. So for me, that's not the most interesting way to talk about it, though. Except in the sense, as Negri says, and I mentioned in the book, I think, um, that sometimes the most interesting revolutionary projects are those that fail because they have so much unexpended possibility. Uh, and I think that uh, for us to think about anti-psychiatry, it's not particularly useful to think about, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Did they screw up? Or they, you know, critique is so easy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like doing critique particularly. And when I fall into it, I'm not particularly happy. Uh, and most of, like most people's critique, it, it comes out of my own little resentments or, or bitternesses about things. Uh, and so I want to, you know, whack at something. And so I, I critique it. But I don't think it's particularly useful. Um, I think what's more useful is to think about residues. Um, that is, what's left over? What can we garner from these movements uh, that didn't get finished? And how can we carry them forward? And I think we can see that in our contemporary scene in the in the, the project you're involved in here, in fact, uh, which is people picking up bits and pieces uh, and then moving them into the 21st century, into this context, and beginning to see, well, what openings are there now that there weren't then? What possibilities are there now that there weren't? Uh, and how might we, now that we see that that great shutdown that happened when psychiatry became so dominant and medication became so dominant, but it's, it's failing uh, and it's trying desperately recoup, but there are cracks, there are fissures, there are places to sneak in and do more interesting things again. Right. And I think for me, that's the legacy is like all revolutionary movements. The legacy is not whether they succeeded or failed, but what did they point to? What did they say for us? Hey, you know, you might want to look at that, or we didn't get that done, or yeah. this could be more interesting. And of course, it has to be reframed in the contemporary vernacular. It has to be reframed within um, what what was only beginning then, which was global postmodern capitalism, but now is in full bloom. And of course, some people say because it's in full bloom, it's coming to its zenith, which means it's getting ready to, to fall apart. Other people say maybe not so much. Um, but what is interesting about such moments is that it is precisely at the moment where a system is at its full extension that there are more opportunities for other things to happen because it, it's impossible for the system to monitor all of what it has produced. Mm. And so there are huge spaces of unmonitored thinking. and un I mean, they're trying desperately to monitor us all, and, and mm. to some degree they're doing a good job, but they can't capture the most interesting stuff. Mm. They can't capture relational work. They can't capture 
um, shifts in subjectivity. They can't capture the things happening under the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, they can only capture the most obvious sorts of stuff, and they can only control our neurology in the most obvious kinds of ways. The struggle for liberation um, under systems of really pernicious oppression um, is uh, life-affirming in and of itself. Mm. You don't have to get to the end of it for it to be life-affirming. Yeah. And I think this is the mistake people make with burnout, is that they burn out because they're constantly expecting it to get better, to get better. To get, and they don't uh, understand that what's getting better is your ability to affirm your life, to affirm your living self, to affirm your relationships, your love, your care, uh, even when that it seems to be just spinning your wheels, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's actually creating small spaces in which really great yeah. things are happening. Mm-hmm. And we want these big picture things because that's what the system teaches us. You know, we're right. supposed to be better and better and better and better. Um, but what's really stunning is creating these spaces, these small spaces uh, in which really cool stuff is happening for whatever duration. This book is largely based on your dissertation work, so a lot of it was written, you know, decades ago. Um, but as I was reading it, you know, so much of it seemed relevant to what was going on today. And I think, like, you know, thinking that we live in a time in history where these major world powers, including China and America, are openly detaining you know, large numbers of innocent people on the basis of criteria ranging from ethnic and religious background to immigration status, it makes so much sense to me why it's useful to compare like these forms of like physical containment with the mechanisms underpinning the traditional psychiatric asylum, because it seems like so much of why people end up there is completely outside of their control, similar to the way that the asylums were. As you're talking now, it reminds me, like in your book, you draw these more general parallels between traditional asylums and capitalism, where it's not just like these large scale physical forms of containment that are operating today, but like these forms of capture that happen in in our everyday interaction. Um, and so maybe I was wondering if you could just kind of define what you mean in your book by like the logic of the asylum, like why that was so important for you then. And also, how do you see its relationship to capitalism as being so important now? One of the things that I talk about in the book is the metastasizing of the asylum. Um, that is to say that uh, where the asylum may have been, if we use the, the metaphor of cancer, a rather contained uh, uh-huh. tumor, for example, that contains things. Uh, when it metastasizes, it spreads throughout the entire system and is no longer contained as a, as a, a tumor, uh, if you will. Um, and so it's not to say, by the way, that the people contained inside the asylum are, are cancerous, but uh, the other way around. Then, in fact, if we think of, of capitalism as a virus, uh, one of the things that capitalism does is that it invades the, so, the society's cellular structure uh, and reconfigures its social DNA. Um, so that it replicates itself in the same way that a virus does and gradually spreads itself throughout the system. Uh, initially, of course, for that to happen, there needs to be a, an initial spot of containment um, where the body is entered and then the, the, the disease is centered. Um, and actually, uh, Deleuze and Guattari use the term vacuole. Um, and they use it in an affirmative sense. Uh, they talk about vacuoles of non-communication um, because the vacuole is a, is a cell within a disease structure that actually sustains its health um, and then gradually spreads uh, itself through the system, uh, through antibodies and so forth and so on. But capitalism is, to many respects, an asylum in several, respect, in several instances. One, the asylum was a space to contain misery, poverty, neurological difference, sadness, rage. It was a space to take people who expressed these things in ways that were disturbing uh, to, the, to the dominant society that wanted a smooth surface, to put these folks in a space where they were removed. Initially, these were spaces of containment. But that was the modernist way of doing such things. Um, so they were removed from society, but it wasn't the, well, the bodies, of course, were removed. But what those bodies expressed needed to be removed uh, because they were the symptoms, the obvious symptoms of a society in breakdown, uh, toxic society. 
And so certainly one way to manage the appearance uh, of a society is not being toxic, but creating it as a smooth surface is to remove those bodies that express difference um, and agony and misery. So similarly, as we have opened the asylum, we just created uh, spaces everywhere to do that. And so we now uh, use medications, for example, to do the same thing the asylum used to do, which is to create smooth spaces uh, in which people no longer express misery or depression. We create um, programs uh, through social media to give people the impression um, that they need to manage their misery and their sadness and their anger uh, in such ways to not be problematic to their work or to their families. We manage um, people's sense of difference by identifying them as diseased uh, if they express emotions that uh, that indicate they're unhappy with things. Um, certainly, if people have um, ways of perceiving uh, reality um, that are at odds with uh, the message the capitalism wants to give of being a purely rational system, uh, when in fact it's an utterly psychotic system uh, and utterly delusional, then certainly you don't want bodies around that, that give the impression that, 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 that it is delusion, that people are manifesting delusional, that they're picking up on that element and manifesting it through their neurology. So the asylum has been spread everywhere, mm. but it does the same things. Um, and capitalism is now the administrator of the global asylum. Mm. Um, but it also, and this is, it's also an iatrogenic system which is to say that it produces madness. Uh, we no longer put we do put them in psychiatric hospitals for brief periods of time. Uh, the more and more we put them in refugee camps, we right. uh, put them in prisons, uh, quite literally. Now. I mean, in the United States, anyway, the prison industry is is uh, where we put a hell of a lot of people who express misery, anger, mm -hmm. sadness uh, in ways that are unacceptable within the dominant society that, yeah. in a way, contravene the dominant narrative which is things can get better. You can always get better. You can always be happier. You can always, and if you have bodies that contravene that message and say, no, you can't, the system is not functional that way. You really can't get happier. If everyone's depressed and everyone's anxious, then how can that be an individual problem? That has to be a social problem. Uh -huh. And we, it's a social problem that capitalism can't admit because it means it's not doing what it claims to do. Yeah. which is to provide a society with enough capital that everyone can strive and do better and be happier and healthier and right and it makes me think in your book you you mentioned marx's term the lumpen proletariat and yeah, yeah. it seems like you're saying that he refers to you know, people who are disabled or severely distressed or without a home as as this as this group, the lumpen proletariat, and he, he really struggles to figure out how they fit within his model of the revolution. Does, they don't quite work because they're not workers. They're not the working class. Right. And so it sort of, it seems like you're saying it fills this void within his system that he never really figures out what to do with it. But it seems like you're trying to kind of reframe that group in a different way. And I really like the way you do that. It kind of reminds me at the beginning of your book, I just want to bring in this quote. It says that what you're interested in is the question of who as an ontological inquiry, which explores subjectivity as the driving force in human politics. Mm -hmm. And you have this really great phrase, like, who are we to become if we are not this? Yeah. Um, and this idea of like sort of reframing that group in, in a, not necessarily a more productive way in the sense of producing something for capitalism, but uh, in a way that, that you know, creates some value for that group. I found that really interesting. Uh, I don't know. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Like, what, what do you mean by that? Like this idea of this category of who is, a, is an ontological inquiry and what role that plays for you in thinking through like a radical form of politics? I think there's, of course, a fine and dangerous line here that would say that, well, are you saying, are you romanticizing the folks who are suffering and saying, you know, they're the revolutionary vanguard, they're the ones to lead us forward, and isn't that great? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, I am saying that they point to symptoms. They point to both possibilities, alternate neurologies, alternate ways of thinking about things, alternate ways of managing emotion. So there's lots of 
ways in which they point to something other than the conventional capitalist subject. Because, as I say in the book, they're constitutively incapable of belonging. Mm-hmm. And so I think to be constitutively unable to belong to a system uh, because of who, of the way that you are configured uh, physically and neurologically, emotionally, um, psychically, um, puts you in a very unique position um, to offer something other. And it also places you in a really dangerous, difficult position because you can't fake it very well. Uh, and the system is not, it, it doesn't care for that very much. Because capitalism is built on faking it, right? I mean, that's that's the name of the game. Uh, fake it till you make it, quite literally. Um, but I mean, the, the idea that we should somehow pretend that we're okay, you know, we get on Facebook and we present uh, this profile that isn't us at all. Uh, and then we try to carry that through in our work life and go to work and be somebody that we really aren't at all. And then we, uh, you know, and you can't collapse and you can't fall apart and you can't. Right. But of course you can, because then we can give you medications so that we can prove that we can make you okay. All of those sorts of things. Right. So the majority of us, uh, the proletariat, which is most of us now, that is to say, because we all work in the, in the uh, intellectual labor market um, and we're all producing all of the time through social media. We're choosing all the time through our consumption. We're producing, we're doing all of it because capitalism has shifted its mode of production. Right. But the folks, the lumpen proletariat, are constitutively incapable of belonging. And for some of those folks, it really leads to being severely marginalized in really dangerous kinds of ways um, that can be life-threatening, um, most certainly. But it also leads to groups of people who find refuge in certain institutions in society, mm-hmm. such as universities are full of people who are constitutively incapable of belonging both students and professors, which I think was one of the reasons that they're under such assault right now, mm-hmm. uh, is because they're one of the last places where you can find refuge uh, and be and create and think outside um, of the dominant logic. Um, so those spaces are a little bit more bourgeois, they're little, little safer places to be than for folks, for example, who are living on the streets or in the prisons um, because they can't constitutively belong. Mm-hmm. But those Bodies also indicate something other, uh, something else, uh, something that we could be that is frustrated, that is made miserable, that is created uh, as, a, as, a, as a kind of miserable life. Uh, when, in fact, there may be, if we manage things differently as a society, and you know this from your work um, in the school you're at, if you manage things differently with people, there are other possibilities, other ways of being in the world that yeah. can be very opening and create all kinds of alternative ways of thinking about things. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, kind of to return to your book then, because you've already started talking a lot, quite a lot about like why antipsychiatry is relevant to your work and how you understand that both in your book and how you understood it in the work that you did before you even got into academia. And so for me, like how you're using Franco Bisaglia in the book now is starting to make a lot more sense in relation to like a lot of this earlier work that you were involved in. But now I'm starting to think more about your use of um, literature uh, mm-hmm. and in particular Kafka is coming to mind as you're talking about this idea of like try- having to fake it until you make it. Um, like to me, like that's, that is uh, exactly what he had in mind, the concept of the law. That's, that's the way I understand it, at least, is this idea that it's never made explicit, but you have to act as if you understand it just so as to get by so that everyone else doesn't, you know, scrutinize what you're doing too closely. And as soon as you start questioning it, that's when sort of everyone around you turns on you. Is that kind of how you would understand it? So yeah, I'm curious like, if you could say a little bit more about like why Kafka was such an important figure for you in that book and how you see that as connecting to maybe some of the themes you're talking about now, like the relationship between capitalism and subjectivity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the book that I chose was America, and I chose it very intentionally because um, the figure of Carl Rossman in, in America is, number one, uh, a figure that is entering America um, at the beginning of the American capitalist project. And it, he's, in, he's entering that America 
And that America is right there at the beginning of industrialization and capitalization and all of the systems that he encounters um, are the beginnings of what we now see as 21st century postmodern capital. And so much of it is there. And what's interesting is no matter how hard he tries, and he tries and he tries and he tries to fit in, uh, and he tries to find his place here, and he tries to find his place there, and he tries to find his place the other place, to build relationships with these people and those people. He can't. He simply is constitutively incapable. In spite of his, he's very well-intentioned. He really wants to fit in. He really wants to be a good citizen. And he simply cannot. He fails time and time and time again until we get to the nature theater at the end. And then this world opens um, that he can enter into um, and it's a very interesting political moment uh, in Kafka. It, it's ridiculously hopeful uh, for a Kafka novel. Uh, at the same time, it has all these little dark edges around it of how, well, yeah, it's kind of utopic, but it's not. It's a struggle, right? It's, Kafka, for me, has is, is got a couple of pieces. One is um, that to be a failure is very important. If one wants to be uh, a revolutionary, one can't be too successful in the system in which one is embedded. There has to be some element of you that fails repeatedly within the system if you're going to do anything interesting. So failure is important because failure always has more residue. It doesn't complete. You don't get there. Because once you get there, you're done. So um, it's not much more to do then. Um, and we can see this with so many people, particularly when they get to my age, you know, get, get uh, to older, uh, where they're done. <laughs> they got it done and they're not sure now what do i do um yeah. whereas if you um i mean i one of the ways i would characterize my life is that's been a series of profound failures throughout and as a result of which it's been way more interesting because i'm never done because i can never quite figure it out i can never quite get there uh, i can never quite get into it i mean now i'm guess more successful but um but certainly uh the failures have been very interesting for me uh, and pushed me in different directions, much like Carl in, in America. I really loved the way that you, you overlaid your, the different chapters in your book and you, you started with anti-psychiatry and then moved on to Kafka and then you returned to anti-psychiatry with Artie Lang after Kafka. Because to me, that move from the law in Kafka to the family structure of Lang that made so much sense, especially in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of thinking about the law in these two different ways. Um, and I'm you know, not as familiar with the history of hypnosis and in particular, like how Lang's work could, or could not be related to hypnosis as you might be. But I'm curious, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. Like, what do you see about Lang's critique of the traditional family structure um, as being relevant to what you're talking about here relating to you know, Kafka and the law? Because that, that segue, it made sense to me even though I couldn't exactly explain it so much, but it, it just seemed intuitive in the way that you, you did that. Okay, so a couple of things to say there, I think. Uh, one is that the law in Lang is the law of un the unconscious uh, acceptance of the family dictates. And so to a certain degree, he talks about it as a family trance, um, that... Uh, the norms of, of family life, and I would say the norms of society, particularly postmodern capitalist society, um, put you to sleep. Uh, and so you go through life in a dream uh, that is manufactured, in his case, by the family. I think we could think in much broader parameters um, by the constructions of uh, the, the neurological and quite literally neurological interventions of postmodern capital. Um, the ways that they're thinking about are intervening in our unconscious and our, and our neurology. Uh, and so there, there's a very much a, an, a, an induction uh, process uh, into a certain kind of trance in which you don't, you're not really fully awake. You're just kind of going through as a sleepwalker in your own life. And Lang says that if you uh, challenge that in the family and you try to wake up, you'll be severely punished. Mm. Um, and I think that's also true within the dominant society as well. But there's another way to think about hypnosis, and that's through the work of Milton Erickson. And Milton Erickson thinks about the unconscious um, as also having the capacity um, to be generative. That is to say, it's 
our unconscious is full of pretty much everything we've ever experienced. And it has the capacity to combine those things in, in a myriad and interesting uh, array of ways. Um, but in order to do that, um, we don't need to wake into our conscious mind. We need to wake into our true unconscious because to us, in a sense, the unconscious that's produced by capital and certainly in the way Lang was talking about it in the family is a faux unconscious. It also makes me think of the way you bring Gabriel Garcia Marquez at the end of the book. And I like, like this quote that you bring in of his uh, from 100 Years of Solitude. He says, um, the family is a turning wheel that would have gone on spilling into eternity. And it made me think, you know, how would it be possible to break free from this? But I think now you're starting to kind of point to that with this uh, interest in, in sort of a different type of trance. And I think we're so used to just associating uh, fantasy and trance with what isn't real, with fantasy. And it's often pathologized when it's experienced, especially outside of a clinical context. When it happens, you know, spontaneously, it, we tend to pathologize these other states of consciousness. Um, and so I'm curious, is, is there something about like the genre of magical realism in particular that you feel like, like highlights this sort of consciousness or this sort of trance unconscious better than psychology? Like, like I'm curious about this idea of what, what a post-capitalist subjectivity might look like and, and you know, what is it about magical realism that gave you the tools to think through that that you might not have been able to find in psychology or maybe another academic discipline? Uh, I'm also interested to see what that would look like. I don't know. I think that magical realism, in the book I talk about this, uh, this distinction between what happened to the unconscious in Europe uh, and what didn't happen on the southern hemisphere in this continent. And... Um, in Europe, we bifurcated, when we got reason and rationality, uh, we bifurcated and created an unconscious. We separated that aspect of unreason, uh, imagination, and we did a tremendous disservice to it. We treated it as not serious, intuition um, as not serious, fantasy as not serious, imagination as not serious, uh, unreason as not serious, um, except when it's pathological, of course. Mm. Um, but we don't take it seriously as a resource, uh, and we dump it all into the unconscious, and then we give great preference to reason. And when the uh, Europeans in the latter half of the 60s, well, early middle, middle of the 20th century, um, really got interested in trying to, um, to break the hold of reason uh, because it had led to, you know, being strictly reasonable and rational had not led where people thought it would. It led to genocide and the atom bomb and uh, all kinds of problems, right? Um, being too scientific, too reasonable, too rational. You see it with psychiatric medications. You can see it with psychiatry in general. I mean, I think psychiatry is one of the few systems that has not responded to critique in any meaningful way. It's still pretty much its own game, and it's pretty much not interested in what other people have to tell it. It's going to operate on its own terms. Um, psychology is a little bit more responsive in some sectors, um, but psychiatry is pretty much locked in as a colonial system. It's going to colonize you if it gets the opportunity to. But the creation of the unconscious uh, meant that when you try to step away from reason and rationality, you can only do it through the creation of really dreams, the slippages of the unconscious into the conscious. So the surrealists start using dreams, and they start using, they, but they have to make this transit between the conscious and the unconscious mind in European uh, art, literature, and so forth. So, you know, Kafka makes this huge point of saying, I don't want you to think these things are metaphorical. These are not metaphors. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez says, these are not imaginative events. These are actual, I want you to see them as actual events. And of course, Gabriel Garcia Marquez has gone back and showed how a number of these things that are in the book and considered fantastical are actually things that really happened. Um, but that's not really the point. Mm -hmm. The point is that in the southern hemisphere uh, on this there was no split between the unconscious and the conscious the peoples of central and south america didn't do the european split and so there was no unconscious fantasy unreason uh, magic um, 
intuition, all of these things are valorized mm-hmm. uh, alongside reason and rationality. Um, and so it becomes an intersectional, um, not in the in the sense of uh, race, uh, critical race theory, but intersectional in the sense of it's this uh, these entanglements uh, of uh, reason, rationality, unreason, intuition. Um, and so the events in uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez are are blends of our consciousness as actual, uh, which I think is far closer to the actuality of how we are as subjects um, when we don't bifurcate ourselves and then cause ourselves to to have to wrestle with these transits between our our apperceptions. Mm -hmm. Um, But we see, and this is, uh, you know, Deleuze and Watheri talk about affect as a transit. You know, when you have a very powerful emotion or you have a very powerful experience, it's a transit, it's a movement. It's not a, we tend to think of it as a, a state, but it's not a state, it's a, tr- it's a motion. And I think uh, when you bifurcate your unconscious, then you get states mm-hmm. um, and you get distinctions. And we have to raise your fantasies into reality and then analyze them psychoanalytically so that we can understand. Since Delissa's great critique of psychoanalysis is it lays a pre-existing template on your experiences. Mm-hmm. And then tells you, this is how you can understand it. You have to raise it out of the unconscious into reason, and then we can explain it and and help you to come to understand it. Gabriel Garcia Marquez says, and Kafka as well, says, no, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. The world is far more complicated and messy than that. Uh, And uh, we're we're creating a a, a lack of reality Mm -hmm. when we claim to be emphasizing reality. Yeah, I like the way that you said that about how you'd like to see what a post-capitalist subjectivity would look like as well, because it is something like by its very nature, as you're saying, that we can't create a model for, right? We can't figure it out before it exists because we we live in capitalism. And as yeah. you say in the book, there is no outside to capitalism, <laughs> at least not, you know, under these current conditions that we're living in. So we can't just imagine some fantasy out there and that's not what you're saying by like i think appealing to the magical realists right we can't just imagine this fantasy outside of our conditions but there's actually enough fantasy within our living conditions to keep us busy and that's maybe a more useful place to start do you see anything um in today's world any groups or or social movements in today's world who are picking up those threads and pushing back on psychiatry or the same type of mechanisms that anti-psychiatrists were pushing back on that, that are pushing back against those in that way what do you think would be required of a group to to pick up those threads and continue to to carry that forward? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there are groups all over the world now um, that are uh, working towards neurodiversity, that are uh, interested in challenging psychiatry, that are interested in alternative modes of accessing uh, fantasy, unconscious, intuitive processes. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there's so many. Um, now, of course, capitalism is as quickly as it possibly can appropriating them, trying to turn them into capitalized systems where you can, you know, go in and purchase, uh, you can go online and, and uh, have a, a therapy interview with somebody who will help you with your neurodiversity. Um, so as, as soon as these openings are created, capitalism is really, really good at appropriating them and capitalizing them, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, I think that we're exceeding the speed with which people are starting to um, say, no, I, I think this is one of the things I think postmodernism gave us. Um, I think, you know, as a system as a whole, it was also a failure. But I think one of the residues that postmodernity has left for us is the idea that minority knowledges are, are meaningful uh, and that they have value. And yeah. that they can be asserted, and I think that that one that one opening uh, of the possibility of minoritarian knowledges uh, being valuable has opened up a wealth of an infinitude of, of micro entanglements um, that make it impossible for ca- for capital to catch it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that uh, you know this podcast, uh, this this movement, uh, the, the the journals, the uh, um, the Hearing Voices Network, the uh, work that Ian is doing with uh, with his center there in in, uh, in Britain, the uh, folks who are doing the work in Finland, um, the, uh, the all over the world, Japan, uh, people are doing really interesting things based in the idea that we're not going to accept psychiatric colonization any longer. 
we're going to uh, decolonize psychiatry uh, from a neurological point uh, and a physical point of view uh, and begin to reclaim our uh, minoritarian knowings uh, about who we are and what we're capable of. Capacities are, and I think that, along with other decolonizing processes, indigenous reclaimed black formation of land, desettling, unontologizing ourselves as settlers, uh, all these resistances against the the ongoing colonial projects, uh, including things like psychiatry and psychology, uh, as colonial projects. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I, I mean, I think anti psychiatry was in that historical moment where decolonization processes were in movement. Uh, and like so many of them, at the end of the day, they ended up having neo-colonial structures. Uh, in other words, we get day treatment centers instead of asylums. We get therapists uh, working in private practice with medications and now general practitioners giving people medications. Mm. Um, so the colonial project becomes a neo-colonial project. Same structures are still in place. It's just different modes of distribution of, yeah. of power. Mm. Um, but it opened up the possibility of decolonization of psychiatry. Uh, and I think that is one of the threads that's been picked up now is we will we don't have to accept the colonial force uh, of psychiatry. We can mm-hmm. create other things now. You know, it's like so we come up with, you know, people start experimenting with psychedelics and immediately uh, capital comes along and says, oh, psychedelics. Well, that'll make you work brighter, smarter. You just microdose and <laughs> you'll feel better and, and you'll be able to be a more yeah. productive capitalist subject. Uh, or uh, I know the big pharma is like chomping at the bit to get a hold of psilocybin as something they can market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, the whole possibility of psychedelics is not just remediating misery, but actually open up, opening up uh, more uh, possibilities for, uh, yeah. for, for capacities for liberation and for mm-hmm. different relational structures. Uh, all of that is, is capitalists don't want that. Uh-huh. Uh, and so they're really trying to, to set up neocolonial structures to manage these slippages. And I think one of the ways that we can be distracted in anti-psychiatry is to think about the main figures and critique them. Oh, well, you know, Lang had this problem. Well, Basali had this problem. Well, Guattari right. was depressed, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, and critique these, um, you know, what Deleuze would call personae. But that's missing the point. It wasn't them. It was the hundreds of thousands of people um, that took those little those possibilities of decolonization and began to play them out under the ground in such a way that even though it looked like psychiatry was still was winning for 20 years when we hit the, the turn of the century all of a sudden they start erupting all over the place and we've got them erupting all over the place right now mm-hmm. and you know now capital in psychiatry is having to play catch up again mm-hmm. and will they catch probably but then we have to realize there there will still be things going on under the ground that will erupt somewhere else yeah you mentioned uh the neurodiversity movement and what Mm i was thinking is recently i've come across a lot of different literature uh within you know that field some literature is critiquing it for sort of just repurposing neoliberal identities like a neurodivergent versus neurotypical and creating like this sort of binary between these two groups whereas like other members of the movement who are working within that movement are saying, no, that's not what we mean at all. Like we we're not trying to create this essential identity that's different than other people. In fact, we're just pointing to the fact that the way that we talk about our bodies matter and that we can actually learn to relate to our bodies and each other in a different way by changing the ways we speak. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about any work that you're currently doing. Like, is there anything that you're, uh, any projects that you're currently working on that you'd like to share some information about or, um, any new books on the horizon? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> seemingly constantly scribbling things. Um, we've been doing uh, a lot of work recently on the idea of desettling, um, which is uh, really looking at the, the uh, subjective and ontological formation of settler subjects. Um, because I think that decolonization, the repatriation of the land, is constantly stalling as it bumps into really core subject formations in terms of settlers uh things like private property for example the belief in private property um the belief there's there's just a ton of them so we're in the process we've done a couple of articles um trying to think about this we're in the process of putting a book together um really trying to rethink uh ourselves as settler subjects but we're trying to do it in a and to me in a way that uh, goes against the grain to some degree 
which is we really don't want to um, do what some other folks in the decolonization settler colonial projects have done, which is to rely really heavily on indigenous literature and thought, mm -hmm. which we think is immensely valuable for decolonization. I'm not sure that as settlers, that is not just more of us taking advantage. Um, and so we're really trying to go back to the European minor traditions uh, in philosophy and thought um, and practice uh, to try to undo ourselves from the inside out uh, on our own terms. Because I think there are traditions in European thought that could decolonize, because, of course, Europeans were colonized as well. Uh, and we lost a lot of those fights in the 1400s to the 1600s in terms of how we might think about ourselves in ways that would not have resulted in the colonial project. Mm -hmm. um, so we're in the, in the process of working on that. I'm continuing to work uh, on um, psychological colonization. Um, my partner, Kathy, and I just did a, an article that, or a book chapter that will be out, I think, reasonably shortly on black men's health. Uh, uh, on the idea that if you're going to be an ally to uh, black men who are struggling uh, with mental health issues, um, then probably psychology is not a really, really great framework for that sort of work, the portrayal that the recent apology from the APA just came forward with uh, about being fundamentally racist. Yeah. If you're not going to be a psychologist and you're going to be helpful to these folks, what does that mean? And how attached are you to colonial identity? Um, how how important is that to you um, that you have this colonial identity? Uh, and if you if it if it is something you want to let go of, how do you go about doing that so that you can be a good a, a useful ally um, to people who are are struggling with really broad contextual racism, uh, disenfranchisement, marginalization, and concomitantly mm -hmm. health issues? Um, so that's a piece we were, we just just finished working on. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I really look forward to. Uh, checking that out. And I've really appreciated this conversation. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.